The sexual revolution of the 1960s, it was a movement away from what had been traditional sexual ethics in the United States. Uh, That movement was led by a vocal minority, but I want to share with you this morning some of the the major markers of this movement. Uh, Pornography had always been around before the 60s, but for the first time in the 60s, there were explicit sexual images that became more prominent and more prevalent. So for example, like movies and other media, magazines. People's sexual practices during this time changed uh, from sex in the confines of marriage to more frequent casual sex. Uh, Part of people's new willingness to engage in this activity appeared to be due to uh, the pill, which was a contraceptive pill licensed uh, by the FDA in 1960. Just so you know, I'm not making judgments on any of these things. I'm just saying this is history. This is what happened. And this, this pill allowed people to pursue sex without the natural risk of having babies. Uh, shortly after, in 1970, no-fault divorce became legal. What this means is that before 1970, people had to prove there was some fault in order to have a divorce. But now you could just go and say, this isn't working, no one's at fault, we can get a divorce. Legal, or abortion became legal in 1973. So all of this, basically 1960 to 1973, that's just the history briefly that I'm sharing this today. Just, you know, it just happened in 10, 13 years. And I share all of that history just to remind us that where we are today, the world we live in today, is not created overnight, not created in a vacuum. History is not a pointless story. Even if you don't like studying history, history is the story that we're living in. And so I'm about to say something I really don't want to say (laughs) because it sounds so negative and it is a judgment. I'll just be upfront. What I'm about to say is a judgment, but I want you to know I'm, I'm saying this out of love for you, for the world, for people. It, it's a judgment um, in love. And, and we absolutely have to have hard conversations about things as they really are if we actually care for other people's well-being. So here's the statement. I, I don't want to say it's, it's a negative statement, but I'm about to follow it up with positive statements, so bear with me. Um, We live in a society that is a sexuality cesspool. And a cesspool is an underground container, if you don't know, for temporary storage of liquid waste and sewage. Um, If if you're not following, I'm just going to be really clear. It's, It's where your poop and pee goes, you know, like that's It's a disgusting and a corrupting place. And I say this in love because we were made, Dean, can I borrow that underneath your seat? That thing, yeah. We were made for clean water. We were made for purity, okay? Not for sewage. So that's that's why I say that statement in love. And we gotta call a spade a spade. We church, followers of Jesus, we've got to talk about these issues. And even more importantly than talking about them, we've got to talk about them rightly. 
And if you're like, oh, I've been, I, I don't, I'm uncomfortable with that. I, I don't know how to talk about it rightly. Well, a couple of quick things. If you don't talk about it, <laughs> you can be sure you're not talking about it rightly. And if you do talk about it and you don't know, you don't know the answer to someone's question, uh, you can just say, I don't know. That's not ignorance. Ignorance says, I don't know, and I really don't care. I really don't have any desire to know. But our voice, our witness in the world has got to be more than no. No to sex outside of marriage. No to homosexual relationships. We've got to be living a big yes to Jesus. And a big yes to living Jesus' ways because his ways are best. We want people to have the clean, pure, drinkable water that we're made for. In the sexual ethic realm and in all realms of living, that is discipleship to Jesus. We got to talk about this stuff. We are the light of the world. Don't, we, don't, we don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl, right? We talked about that a few weeks ago. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that you have to share your sexual struggles with everyone But man, I sure hope and pray that you develop the trust, especially here. Wherever God has called you to plug into the local church, develop the trust enough with at least one person that you can share. So God, help us today so that tomorrow we can help someone with the help that only you supply. And so here's here's why I say we live in a cesspool of sexuality. Uh, These are all just stats, so, you know, there's some fudge factor, I think, in all stats. Um, But I I just kind of want to show a picture of the society that we're living in. This this is all stats about the U.S. Um, And I I just, you know, there's there's a range, so I put the conservative ones. Stats say that 60% of men and... between 10 and 30%, they really can't peg women down, view porn once a month. Once a month. Many who do view are addicted. And science is beginning to show the destructive effects of this addiction. I won't go into those details, but if you'd like to know, I'd be happy to go into those details with you later. Uh, The addiction does have very destructive effects. Uh, More than one-third, 36% uh, of Americans get this. This is the most disturbing to me. They say that pornography is morally acceptable. They're saying that pornography is not wrong. And you might think, well, Ben, that means that most people still think pornography is wrong. And you're right. Most people do. But that number is higher than ever before. It's on the rise that people think... Porn isn't even bad. Stats indicate that 40 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. And I'm going to unpack the connection, why I included that stat in there later. But uh, if you're thinking, well, Ben, that's, you know, that's the world and, and, you know, we're the church. We're called to live holy lives and, you know, we're better than that. Uh, Stats do not back that up. The, The stats are basically the same in and outside the church, unfortunately. We have the Holy Spirit that we just sang about. We have the power to say no to these things in order to say the bigger and better yes to Jesus. We got that power. Um, But it's on us to access that power. To learn how to access 
living in his power. So that's the intro. I want you to listen, us together, listen to Jesus' teaching as we continue our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, This is Matthew 5, verse 27 through 32. You've heard that it was said, oh, wait, no, I missed something really important. Can we go back up to the slide? (laughs) This is way too important to skip out on. The problem isn't the 60s, okay? We need to hear this before we read Jesus' teaching. The problem isn't the 60s. The problem isn't technology, whether it be a form of contraception or the internet or anything. The root of the problem, the problem lies within each of us at the heart level. So now let's listen to Jesus' teaching in our passage today. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In the heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. So before we really dig in to this passage, I want to give a quick overview. Here's where we're going today. Uh, We're going to define lust. That's where we're going to start. And then look at two ways Jesus teaches us to handle lust. And I'll finish with a summary of of this passage and some gospel implications, how the gospel shapes our lives in this way, in this regard. So in order to define lust, uh, we must understand what the, what the heart is. It's not necessarily just what you feel. Uh, it, it's the command center of your being. That's where your decisions are produced. It takes in all the information, but the heart, the the heart is where decisions come from. And so a sick heart, one way that a heart is sick spiritually is to operate this way. I feel, therefore I do. That's a sick heart because the heart is supposed to be the commander that says, okay, yes, we're taking in this information, but the commander chooses the next course of action. The feelings are not the commander. The heart is is the commander. So Jesus is aiming at the heart. And he's he's saying that this look with lustful intent, this this choice to pursue something that's not ours is is producing adultery in the heart. That Jesus is saying, just like last week when he says, you've heard that it was said, don't murder, but I tell you, don't be angry with your brother. He's, he's saying, that's the, angry with your brother is the first step towards murder. And this week he's saying, wanting something that's not yours, that you shouldn't have, that's not good for you, that's the first step towards adultery. Wanting something sexually that is not good for you. 
So anytime we say in our heart, uh, I must have that, that, that's lust. That's coveting. And that's a lot different, just so you know. That's a lot different than saying, God, I'd like to have that. If you're single, you, you, can, you can say, God, I'd like to have a boyfriend. God, I'd like to have a girlfriend, a wife. Uh, but the, the two differences is the first is deciding. or this, God, I'd like to have that. That's deciding with God, right? That's including God and, 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 and it's, it's deciding. It's having a conversation. The second is decided. I must have that. And it doesn't include God at all. So I've used this analogy last week and before, but I find it incredibly helpful because there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes with to around to what lust is. Uh, this, this analogy helps define it. Um, there's nothing wrong. You can't stop a bird from landing in your hair, right? You're just going about your day and a bird lands or poops on your head. You know, like, <laughs> it's not your fault. But if you let that bird, like, nest on your head, you, that's your fault. You, you can stop. You can wave it off. And it's the same thing with lust, right? You, you can't help it when a beautiful woman walks into the room. That is not lust. When you notice someone's beauty, when you notice someone's attractiveness, that's not lust. When it's lust is when inside you think and you begin to intend to enjoy it and consume it and, and make plans to see it again, for your own self-gratification. That's all lust. There's nothing wrong with noticing beauty. And so, nothing wrong with a bird landing on your head, you know, temporarily, but you got to shoot it off. Birds aren't meant to nest there, right? And so men, um, yeah, there's nothing wrong with saying uh, uh, she's beautiful. But, Lustful intent is wrong, and lustful intent says, if I could, I would. Because that would be good. That, that's what you, you might not ever think that, but that's what you're saying with lust, is that's good for me. And, and God has said, no, that's not good for you ever. Or not right now. Maybe if you're single, you're like, man, that, that'd be good. And God's saying, not right now. And I've really struggled with like, women, Women, what, what does lust look like for a woman? So I, I got something I'm just going to read from a woman who wrote on lust. This is an uh, article from the Gospel Coalition. Uh, she, she writes, When a beautiful woman walks in the room or flashes on a screen or billboard, all eyes are transfixed, she says. While men might be thinking about sex, a woman might be thinking, I wonder what it would be like to have such a body. Men want the body. Woman... Women want the body. They want to be the person that attracts everyone. She says, lust can either be a strong feeling of sexual desire or a strong desire for something. Doesn't even have to be sexual. She says, we know a man has sinned when he takes the body he wants through indulging in pornography or visiting a prostitute. But what does it look like for a woman to act out on her lust? She can't take that body. So what does she do? For the most part, her sin remains hidden. Still, there are telltale signs of her sin, which I'll describe in the first person because I also struggle with this, she writes. Self-pity is the first sign. The first feeling lust produces in a woman is dissatisfaction in her own body. 
We compare our body with someone else's and we've fallen short. We imagine the other woman is sexier, more confident in herself, and overall better off. This leads us to self-pity. Insecurity is another sign of the sin of lust in the heart of a woman. You feel sorry for yourself, and so you're insecure. We feel threatened in our femininity and in our relationships because our boyfriend, fiance, husband must find this new woman more attractive. And we transpose this subjective fear into reality. Another is criticism. So because you're insecure, you feel the need to put other women down. We rationalize our struggle by leveling the playing field in our own minds. Well, she might be very sexy looking, but she's probably not very smart. Or her hair is perfect, but I'm sure glad I don't have those legs. We would never say anything cruel, but when that happens in our heart, it's lust. It's a sign of lust. Or activism. If none of that makes a woman feel better, they embark on a never-ending cycle of self-improvement. We need to regain the ground that we lost, is the mindset there. It's a form of works righteousness. And, and I also want to say, uh, people struggling with same-sex attraction, meaning they have desires for the same sex, you can, you can follow Jesus and struggle with that form of sexual immorality. You're not embracing those desires. You're saying, I have these desires that are sewage. They're not the clean, good water that God has for me. It, 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 it feels or it seems good to me, but I know it's not good because God has spoken on that. So again, this is a matter of the heart. And God's intention isn't just that we'd be people who don't cheat on our spouse. You've heard that it was said, don't, co don't commit adultery. But that we would be repulsed at the thought. Like we're repulsed at the thought of drinking sewage. You know, like, ugh, you just want to throw up. But what happens in our society, I mean, according to the stats even, is like people are apparently so used to the sewage that it's like, you know, it's not so bad. It almost reminds me of something I smelled earlier. And people die from drinking contaminated water. In, in parts of the world, they still die today from drinking contaminated water. Th this is deadly. And that's why Jesus says what he says about it's better for you to cut off your right hand. It's better for you to gouge out your right eye. It's that serious. And we're going to talk about the hyperbole later, so don't worry. Um, it's, it's hyperbole. Um, so what do we do about it? That's where we're going. Here's the two teachings of Jesus. Here's the hyperbole. Do whatever it takes, Jesus teaches. Do whatever it takes to eliminate this sickness in your heart. Do whatever it takes. And he uses that hyperbolic statement, meaning it's an exaggeration to prove a point. Do whatever it takes. Because Jesus knows, again, just he knows Cutting off your right hand isn't going to help on the heart level, right? He knows that gouging out your eye isn't going to help on the heart level. He's, he's making a point. Do whatever it takes to eliminate the sickness in your heart. He knows the real problem isn't the time that you spend alone in the evenings or your phone. But if it takes a dumb phone to get that bird out of your hair, trade in your smartphone for a dumb phone. But do it knowing that you still need to engage your heart, it's an exercise in 
in letting him change your heart. That's what he's aiming at. So again, here's my attempt at summarizing Jesus' teaching there with cut off your right hand, gouge out your right eye. Do whatever it takes to eliminate that sickness in your heart and engage it with that type of intentionality and ferocity. And now, I just want you to think with me, how could you say that? How could you say, do whatever it takes to eliminate the heart sickness in a positive way? Because that's a negative statement, right? Heart sickness. Do whatever it takes to promote health in your heart. See, I don't believe Jesus or God is teaching us as Christians to uh, suppress or get rid of desire at all. Not here, at least. But to get rid of desire that will destroy you. And C.S. Lewis has a couple great quotes I want to read that talks about the role of desire in, the, in our life as Christ followers. He says, first, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the, of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord, tune in here, finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum just, just because you can't imagine what's meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We're far too easily pleased. Or, or this quote. This is my, my last C.S. Lewis quote. Uh, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hungry. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy this desire, it doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to ultimately satisfy, but only to arouse, to suggest the true and ultimate satisfaction. If that's so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise these earthly blessings, but on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they're only a copy, an echo, a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. So to summarize that, to, to put it simply in an application form for us to live, feel your desires. Don't be afraid of what you feel. But do not let your feelings run your life. Don't let the feelings sit in the commander's seat that, that is the human heart. Do not act without thinking about what is actually true. Because those feelings, those emotions, they're like lights on a dashboard. They're telling you something. But if your brake light comes on, you don't got to slam on the brakes and pull over immediately. You just got to, okay, I need to look into that later. 
Our feelings are meant to remind us to seek ultimate fulfillment, ultimate satisfaction. And nothing in this world apart from Christ will satisfy that. So when the beautiful woman walks into the room, men, you can say to God, I think, I think, you know, this is where you should start is with God. Wow, she's, she's really attractive to me. And women, you, you can notice men and say, God, he's really attractive to me. God, thank you that I can trust that you know what's actually best for me. And if you're married, uh, your wife is what's best for you. And if you're single, it'd, it'd be something more like this. God, you're my satisfaction and nothing I desire compares with you. God, I can trust that if you want me to be married, I will be married. I can trust you with that. That's turning a lust temptation into an opportunity to love your spouse and to love other people and not objectify and use other people. That's loving God and loving others. But we must be convinced that this is a better way. We must be known by what we're saying yes to. We're saying yes to Jesus, yes to his way of life because it's the best. And we're only saying no, you know, to sexual immorality of all kinds because our yes is so much better. So we're a people that's defined not by our no's, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, but yes, this is so good. This is so much better. So that was Jesus' first teaching is we must ruthlessly eliminate the heart sickness, and, and move towards with vigor, heart health. Um, the second teaching Jesus gives is, is I think, he, he frames it in a negative light, talking about divorce. But if you read it, uh, what he's really saying is, say yes to your spouse. Like, th- that marriage, marriage is a great, by saying yes to marriage, Uh, you're saying no to sexual immorality. You're saying no to adultery of the heart. And and so love and be faithful to your spouse. And so Jesus is addressing in this this context when he says, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, right? That's what the Old Testament says in Deuteronomy 24. So we've got to look at that because Jesus' audience understood what he was saying about uh, divorce. They, they, could, they had to prove fault, but, but look at the fault that they had to prove. It wasn't much. 20, Deuteronomy 24 says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and then she finds no favor in his eyes, look at the fault, because he's found some indecency in her. They, they took that verse way out of context. And basically, if she burned the toast, burned the dinner, I find some indecency. As long as I do it legally... God's good with it, right? That, that, that is the context that Jesus is speaking into. But there is a little bit more, so I'm going to keep reading Deuteronomy 24. Find some indecency in her. He writes her a certificate of divorce. It's, you know, I go through the process, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house. She departs out of the house. She goes and becomes another man's wife. And if that next man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the second husband dies... Basically, if for some reason she's not married and the first guy, the first dude who sent her away for some indecency, uh, Jesus, or God is saying, you may not take her again to be your wife after she's been defiled. That's an abomination. 
That's a big, big bad deal to God. And you will not bring sin upon the land, the community the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So, you know, they, they thought and lived like, well, as long as it's binding, as long as there's no givesies backsies, God's good with it. And Jesus fulfills, he fulfills the intent of God's law, which is that women are not to be abused by men who have followed their own evil, destructive desires. Jesus is very clear that divorce is only an option because we are so wicked. What Jesus is saying, and if you flip that in a positive sense, is God's intention all along is that marriage is good. God's design in marriage is totally good. And so love your spouse. That is living with a big yes to Jesus. Love your spouse. Be faithful to your spouse. And some here might say, Ben, you don't know my spouse. I don't. Nobody knows your spouse like you know your spouse. That's the nature of marriage. And some might say, Ben, I'm single, so... Yeah, it doesn't apply to me. And we can all hold marriage in a high regard by not compromising our convictions in order to find a companion. And singles, I just want to say to you that there is a unique spirituality that God calls a single to that the church that the that the church needs. We need to see singles living faithfully in their singleness. And I just want to say firsthand. That's incredibly encouraging to me as a married man. And, you, and if you're single, you're, Ben, Ben, I'm not, called to, I'm not called to a life of celibacy. I, I know that. I've prayed about it. I know. I'm, not saying that, I'm not saying that you're called to a life of celibacy, okay? okay? Uh, that, you, your singleness might change tomorrow. You know, that, that's another part of the nature of singleness. Um, uh, you might, you know, you might start seeing someone tomorrow. But today, if you're single, live faithfully as a single. And marrieds, there is a unique spirituality that you're called to. It's God's will for you to flourish in your marriage. It, you know, so many things that, you know, when, when we ask what God's will is, he's, he's given us a whole book of answers. I mean... <laughs> And, and ask the I'm not I'm not diminishing that question. That's been an important question for me and continues to be. But there's, there's a lot of answers, right? Like, you're meant to flourish in your marriage. And you cannot control your spouse, okay? But you can control your choices. And for our good, we need to agree with God that marriage is good, even when it doesn't feel good. And so singles and marrieds, your spirituality matters. And throughout church history... I won't go into detail, but throughout church history, the church tends to really elevate marrieds or really elevate singles, and, and we just need both. We need to value the contributions of both. So now, now we're to the end, uh, almost. Uh, in summary, what Jesus is saying is sexual desires are not inherently sinful. It is the exercise of the sexual appetite outside the boundaries that God has established, that's the problem. And, and the boundaries start in the heart, okay? 
And the point is, once that heart, once the will has internally turned and embraced immoral behavior, sin is already there. And once it grows up, it's going to bring death to your life. But the emphasis that Jesus is teaching us with the gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, if that's what it takes to, to deal with those desires in line with God's word, the emphasis is on what we do with those desires. We, we, we are to use them as training opportunities to remember, okay, I don't know what's good for me. God knows what's good for me. And now that we are at the end, I, I want to acknowledge I'm, I might have lost some people early on in this talk. Like you might have been soaked in shame because uh, you've been trapped and, and you've tried to get out um, of the, the chains of sexual immorality and, and, and you just don't have, you, you don't have any testimony of progress. I mean, you're, you might have lost hope in this whole deal that this is possible. Tune in. And everybody tune in because you will know someone like that in your life. Whether or not you know that, 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 that that's where they're at. We're, we're all going to run into those people. No one is too far gone. No one who's breathing is without hope. And just so you know, there's not a single person in this room or in all of human history who is totally sexually pure. Except Jesus. And he died for the sins of the world. So whether you feel like it or not, this can be fully and finally forgiven by God because Jesus' death on the cross. And all of us actually can change because Jesus isn't dead. He's alive. And, and nobody, nobody needs any more power than the power that Jesus freely offers, the power that's available in him. So if you, if you want it, you can have it. It's going to be hard. It's going to require your whole life because he loves you too much for you to keep any of your sewage in order to drink the pure water that's healthy and good for you. It's going to require everything. But, but it's possible. It's possible for you to change. And, and you might have found that you've lost a taste for water when you start moving towards that because you've gained a taste for sewage. It's going to be a process. Each one of us must choose how we live in this sex pool, a cesspool of sexuality. I'm almost done talking, I promise. <laughs> We've got to choose. We've got to choose how we live in the cesspool. And here's some options. I think some... We need to be careful against a couple of these. We, rail against it is an option and say, I hate this and I don't want, I, I'm a, let's go to war on sexual immorality. This stuff is dangerous. Like, let's, let's build, let, let's protect against it. That's option number two. Let's, let's protect against it and build a fortress. Uh, so take it out or, you know, protect and build a fortress. Those are the two really bad options, though. Because the problem is, that's standing for what we're against. That's living a no. We want to live a yes. And there, I, I learned a lot about sewage this week. And there's actually a process for purifying it. 
and it's extensive, but it produces water that's safe to dump into rivers. It's not going to kill life. And the, the process doesn't just happen. You know, there's a processor who directs it all. And, and Jesus is that processor for us, not just sexually, but in our lives. At a heart level, we're all sick. We all have sewage. And we all need to say yes to him, to follow him, and to trust that in the process, like, he's going to make us fishers of men. He, that, that we can point other people living in the sewage pit to the one who is purifying us, who has purified us, is purifying us, and will purify us. So I'm going to give us the next few moments to talk to God about just about, about your own life. And just start by, if you're struggling to feel like he really is the ultimate fulfillment of your desires, tell him. He can, he can handle it. If there's any way that you're holding on and not, not, not trusting what he says is best in your life, repent. And if, you're, if you've been living in that direction, if you've, been, if you've experienced some purifying, uh, but you're really uneasy, <laughs> you know, like bearing witness to others. Um, he's, you're not the first person he's heard that from. So talk to him about that. Jesus, we praise you for being the pure one who purifies us. Thank you for engaging us at the heart level. And we, we confidently say that you have overcome everything that separated us from you. And we confidently declare right now and we, we commit to continuing to declare as we leave this place that you are alive and you're with us. You're powerful. We want to live a big yes to you that makes all of our no's make sense because we're focused on the yes.